Hey there, welcome to another edition of LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we are going to be talking to award-winning author and journalist Hector Tobar about what it means to him to be Latino in this country. His new book is Our Migrant Souls, A Meditation on Race and the Meanings and Myths of Latino. Uh, Hector's going to talk about growing up in L.A., uh, what his family was like, and also why he thinks Star Wars might be the ultimate Latino film. We're also going to talk to the comedian and filmmaker Jenna Friedman. Her new memoir, Not Funny, has a misleading title because Jenna's actually very funny. Although there is one joke or topic that she's probably going to steer clear of going forward. She'll explain why. And then we will hear some music from one of our very favorite bands, the band Joseph. We've got one heck of a show in store for you this week. Don't go anywhere. Livewire starts right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going spectacular this week. Yeah. Even better because it's time for a little station location identification examination. Uh-oh. <laughs> I can hear your enthusiasm <laughs> down the line. This is where I quiz Elena on a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's got to try to guess where I am talking about. Now, this town was designated the hang gliding capital of the West in 1991. Everybody was talking about it. Is it the Dalles, Oregon? You're in the right state. It is not the Dalles, Oregon. How about this name for a geyser? They have a geyser in this town called Old Perpetual. Ooh, geyser. So it's... uh, Feels like the Pepsi to Old Faithful's Coke. <laughs> Old Perpetual. That means it's in the deserty part of... Think about a wetter desert where a body of water is contained in a kind of circular fashion crater could, lake is it crater, crater it does lake it has a lake in the title it's lakeview <laughs> oregon i'm gonna give it to you hey you can lead in elena to water and you can give her the point for lakeview oregon where we are on k-o-a-p so shout out to everybody listening down in beautiful lakeview oregon the tallest town in oregon we're told all right you ready to get to the show let's do it take it away from PRX, it's... This week, award-winning author Hector Tobar. Latino is um, essentially a term that, to a lot of us, feels like a marketing term. 
and comedian and author Jenna Friedman. I do still think you can joke about anything as long as you're coming from a place of humanity or not. I mean, I didn't watch the Trump town hall, but like he seemed to be killing it in that room. So with music from Joseph and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in all over the country. We have a truly entertaining show in store for you this week, talking to a bunch of interesting folks, including Jenna Friedman, who has written a book with a sort of misleading title. It's called Not Funny, although Jenna is a very funny person, was actually nominated for an Academy Award for her work on Borat 2, subsequent movie film. And as we were talking about Jenna's book, Elena, we realized that you have a story about a time when you were trying to be funny and it did not have the desired effect. We're going to hear that story coming up in a few. First, though, of course, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder at the top of the show. There is some good news happening out there in the world. Sometimes you just have to look for it. Elena, what's the best news you heard all week? This is a special one. I hope you're ready. It involves a young professional person named Emily Ben Schoeder. She's 29. She lives somewhere near the American Southwest. And she recently, in July, took some kind of job with a forward-facing capacity, front of house in some kind of service industry position. I think she got the job through an application in which her appearance was not visible. So when they realized that she had pink hair, they had to let her know that her hairstyle was in violation of the company's, quote, natural color policy. And I think they really wanted to keep her or she really wanted to keep the job. And so she said, what do you suggest I do? And they said, wig. And she said, (laughs) oh, challenge accepted. But they didn't say what kind of wig she needed to wear. And they didn't say the quality of wig. So for the past month or so, she has been posting on TikTok the wigs that she has been selecting to wear to her job. Um, All of them are natural color. One of them is a total vintage 1994 Jennifer Aniston wig. Mm -hmm. Another one is a slash slash Nikki Six kind of Motley Crue style wig. Uh, I think I saw a Richard Simmons wig at one point. We're getting any kind of like founding father action going on? Any of those oh, you know kind it. of yeah. constitutional style wigs? Full on George Washington curls on the side, black ponytail, Ichabod <laughs> Crane style wig. It's in white, which is for some people a natural color. Mm-hmm. And then there are some that just looks like the wigs natural blonde hair was caught in like an electric socket. <laughs> and in all these TikToks, she's wearing uh, what looks like kind of her uniform and these uh, wonderful wigs. And she says she has a new mantra, the worse wig, the better. And the <laughs> coolest thing about this story is that followers have commented on their own little acts of corporate dress code rebellion. There's a hospital in some uh, unnamed town that won't let people have uh, different colored hair. So they all bought matching. I'd like to speak to your manager, Karen wigs and the whole staff. <laughs> is wearing them (laughs) so the descent is happening amongst the wage earning americans at least the ones that are on tiktok and i just love that level of sass and i hope that she never runs out of wig options if you can't beat them wig them that's right (laughs) wig out new rallying cry (laughs) the best news i saw all week is also another workplace story 
Um, it involves, uh, well, kind of a guy named Jeff Simpkins going into a Home Depot in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Now, Jeff goes to this Home Depot in Mount Laurel a lot because uh, he's a commercial floor installer. Mm-hmm. And I speak as somebody who's been remodeling a house. Uh, you end up living in your local home improvement <laughs> store when yeah. you're doing this kind of stuff. And Jeff, it also turns out, is a real cat lover. In fact, Jeff has two cats. They're named, wait for it. Will and Grace. Oh, no. And as Jeff was wandering the aisles of this Home Depot, he kept noticing cat-related stuff in the Home Depot. Like, not stuff they sell. Like a cat tree, a used litter box. He was like, something's going on here. So he grabs one of those, like, orange-vested employees and says, is there a cat living here? And the person just says, come with me, and leads Jeff to the heating and air conditioning aisle. We're just sitting like a king is Leo the cat (gasps) who lives in this Home Depot. Turns out the employees of this particular location in New Jersey, somebody adopted slash rescued Leo because they had a mouse problem. Uh Uh-huh. So they got this cat to live there and take care of the mouse population, which apparently is working. Oh, good. But then what happened was Leo had a little skin condition and they had to put some kind of bandage on it. And Leo was kind of like, messing with the bandage so they put a t-shirt on leo to try to like keep him from messing with his bandage and this became a whole thing he's wearing a hocus pocus t-shirt currently like people come in with outfits for leo jeff started posting pictures of leo and videos on tiktok to draw attention to the uh, the idea of rescuing cats these have been viewed like millions of times. Oh my God. It's a whole thing. People are like coming from far and wide to go to this Home Depot to find. And also the thing is, Leo just free ranges within the store. So you don't know where you will find him necessarily. He does sleep in the garden center at night because it's climate controlled. They cannot close this Home Depot, Elena, until they go find Leo <laughs> and make sure he's in his safe spot in the garden section. He hangs out in the toilet section sometimes. (laughs) There, it turns out, are cats that are living in a few other Home Depots, one in Chandler, Arizona. That cat is named Cat and roams that Home Depot. And then there's one also in New Jersey, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's a cat named Oscar that is living in that Home Depot. And all I can say to the Home Depot of Longview, Washington, where I spend most of my time and money, get a cat. Get it, cat. This should be part of <laughs> every Home Depot there. experience. See right, exactly. Just let them wander in. So that's the best news that I saw this week. All right. Our first guest is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, acclaimed novelist, and contributing writer for the New York Times opinion pages. He's also a professor at UC Irvine in California. His latest book, Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino, seeks to decode the meaning of the term Latino in the modern United States. Publishers Weekly calls the book probing, heartfelt, lyrical, and uncompromising. Hector Tobar joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, to talk about the book. Take a listen. Hector, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I really enjoyed the book. Um, one of the things that jumped out at me, though, is like almost one of the first pages is this photo. I presume it's you at, um, at Griffith Park, like where the observatory is. 
uh, for people that don't know, like Rebel Without a Cause back, right. backdrop. Um, what's the story with that photograph? That photograph was taken um, three or four months after I was born. Uh, my mother had been in the United States for about six months. My parents are Guatemalan immigrants. And um, it was my father playing with his new Polaroid camera. It's a little <laughs> Polaroid, like a three by five. And my father, you know, wanted to take a picture that was uh, his family, his new family in front of this symbol of American science and technology and modernity. You know, they're from, my father's from a very small village in Guatemala and suddenly he's in Los Angeles in front of, you know, the Griffith Observatory. Mm. What was it like for you growing up the son of immigrants in Los Angeles. Did you have a sense of that as a kid, that your parents had come from somewhere else? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my parents told me stories about Guatemala as this land of wonder, volcanoes, military coups, you know, uh, tamales, um, and that we lived in the United States, which was the greatest country on earth, you know? It was Los Angeles when the freeways were being built, um, you know, I grew up during the space program. I had my model Saturn V rocket, you know. Um, I had a little space jumpsuit that my parents bought for me. And, you know, I remember watching the moon landing with my mother. My mother was terrified that Neil Armstrong was going to sink into the moon, you know. really. So, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was living with the sense of American greatness, but also this romantic sense of where I was from, that Guatemala was a really beautiful place of love. Um, before we go uh, too much further, I, I want to make sure that I'm describing the folks in this book properly. Um, why do you feel the term Latino is, is so flawed? Yeah, um, Latino is um, essentially a term that to a lot of us feels like a marketing term. You know, it groups together a lot of different kinds of people. I mean, there's nothing really more different than your average Guatemalan guy and your average Cuban person, you uh -huh. know? Uh, Cubans are very excitable. Guatemalans are very stoic, right? Um, and so we all, but we all have this common relationship to the United States, which is that we're from Latin America, mm -hmm. right? And so the term Latino was invented to, you know, to describe us. But your average Latino person is really a mixture of many things, right? Um, so the European part of us is favored by the term Latin. It says that we have something in common with people from Spain, but also people from Italy, right? That's where Latin comes from. And it ignores um, the indigeneity that many of us carry. I have ancestors who are Mayan Indians. Um, many Guatemalans, many Mexicans have ancestors, many Cubans and Dominicans who are African, right, of mm -hmm. African descent. And so Latin kind of, Latino erases that. What do you tend to use then in conversation? Like, how have you solved this problem? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I, I think that our race terms, and especially white, mm. you know, no human being is white. I'm right? really trying tonight with this outfit. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're giving it a, a, your best shot. But, you know, those terms describe a state of mind. They're mm. creations of history. White was created as a counter to black, and mm. it was, you know, it's a product of slavery. That's, yeah. that's where that term comes from. Mm. Well, so then from a practical standpoint, and you, of course, don't speak for, you only speak for yourself. Yes. But what, what feels like an accurate and respectful way for people to talk about this wide, wide range of folks that are from Central and South America? Well, I think you just have to recognize when you're using them, that's what you're doing. Mm. 
Mm. You're making a generalization. Mm -hmm. I like Latino. Latino's fine with me. Uh, Latinx is okay. It's more of a university term. (laughs) Now they're throwing out Latin-A, which only people on college campuses use. (laughs) You know, um, so no, I think Latino is good, and and the terms are also they're expressions of solidarity, mm-hmm. right? So, in for example, in my family, I'm Guatemalan. My wife is Mexican American, also calls herself Chicana. Our kids are Guatemalan, Mexican American, Angelinos, mm-hmm. which is just easier to say Latino, right? <laughs> this is Live Wire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello right over there. We are talking to journalist and author Hector Tobar about his latest book, Our Migrant Souls. When we get back, Hector is going to tell us about some of the personal stories that make up the book, including maybe the most iconic video ever of a guy skateboarding to Fleetwood Mac while drinking cranberry juice. Don't go anywhere. That's around the corner here on Livewire. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are listening to a conversation we recorded with celebrated writer Hector Tobar talking about his book, our Migrant Souls. Let's get back to that right now. Recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon. One of the things that you talk about in this book is that your family lived like about 100 feet or yes. so from James Earl Ray, the person who assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, wh- what memories do you have of that time in your family's life? Were you conscious of of, of that person that was that was living 100 feet away from you? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, I only put that together, you know, 30, 40 years later when I read about the King assassination, read some histories about the King assassination, and I saw where he lived, and I realized that was the next street over. Mm. And so our backyard faced his, like, you know, alley. Mm. And so we were with, like, 200 feet from James Earl Ray, and I traced it all together. And to me, you know, James Earl Ray was really transient. Mm-hmm. You know, when he was plotting the King assassination, he had escaped from jail in Missouri. 
And he was living in all these flop house type places in Hollywood. It was in East Hollywood, California, was a real transient place. And so to me, it speaks to the fact that almost all of us, you know, we're, we're living inside American history. Mm-hmm. And we often don't know how our lives overlap with these events. And the really interesting thing about that story of James Earl Ray is that at the same time that I'm living next to James Earl Ray, the guy who drives my mother to the hospital when she's pregnant with me is this African-American guy from Memphis. And he had escaped Memphis because he had participated in a sit-in protest against segregation in the Memphis Public Library. So... He meets my mother in the laundry room of the tenement building where they're living. He's studying Spanish at LA City College. And he tells my mother, look, I see you're pregnant. If you need anything, let me know. And, he, and she says to him, you know, well, I could use a ride to the hospital. And then when she goes into labor, she drives in his convertible to LA County General Hospital. And he became my godfather. Wow. So... Booker Wade, and I found him 40 years later, thanks to the Los Angeles Times and a column that I wrote. And so I'm living next to this white supremacist, but I'm also living next to, you know, an NAACP activist for, you know, civil rights. Wow. Um, we're talking to Hector Tobar. Uh, his latest book is Our Migrant Souls. What were you hoping to really explore as you wrote this book? And, and how did you go out on that journey? Who were you looking to talk to? Well, you know, I, I, this is my pandemic book, and I watched this incredible documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, mm-hmm. by yeah, Roel Peck, Baldwin. and it's the, it's the essays of James Baldwin, right, mm-hmm. set to these images, and I just heard Baldwin's voice talking about race in America, and I thought, you know, we as Latino people, we don't have a book like that. You know, we don't have this essay that talks about what it means to be brown-skinned, Mexican-American, Guatemalteco, within this story of the United States, the way James Baldwin takes it apart. And so I gave myself the task of writing that book, you know? A simple assignment. Yeah. The definitive text on. Right. right. Just be like James Baldwin. Right. Well, you know, I learned that as a little Guatemalan kid, you know, it's like the way you're going to get noticed is do something big, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so when I got to the LA Times, right for the front page. And right. so I wanted to do something. Yeah, it was very ambitious, but I've always been that way. Um, well, could you read a little bit from the book? There oh, was, sure. Um, I mean, there's so many parts of the book that jumped out at me, but there was one section that's actually sort of towards the end, but um, I was hoping you could... You could share that with folks. Yeah, this is a story. uh, This is another pandemic story. It's um, about something that I saw, uh, you know, when we were all watching the Internet all day long and we were sharing TikToks and Instagrams. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as the pandemic lingers on, a man from Idaho Falls posts a video on TikTok. In an interview afterward, the creator of this work of art will say he first used the social media platform at the encouragement of his daughter. He lives in a trailer without running water in Idaho Falls, across the street from his brother's house. At one point in his life, he had been homeless, living in a tent on a dirt road along the Snake River. When his car breaks down on the way to his job at a potato warehouse, he takes the long board he has on his front seat and decides to ride it the rest of the way. On one level, this is a humiliating moment of precarity, as a social scientist might say a reminder of so many things that have gone wrong in his life. But he turns on his cell phone camera, and in the video that results, Nathan Apodaca transforms his precarity into something else. Stevie Nicks of Fleetwood Mac sings, and he lip-syncs to her voice. The effect is like that of drag, 
a juxtaposition of masculinity and femininity. He's a tough-looking, dark-skinned guy next door, a gang member in the eyes of ignorant strangers. And yet here he is, bearing his feminine soul. Underneath the 12 o'clock shadow on his shaved head, you can see the feather tattoo on his skull, which he wears in honor of his Native American mother, a member of the Northern Arapaho tribe. His father is Mexican, and later he will tell an interviewer, I'm Native Mexican. Hmm. That's That's Hector Tobar reading from Our Migrant Souls. One of the things you, uh, you mentioned in the book, Hector, is uh, that L.A. is both the most sort of Latinx city in the U.S., and it's also the center of the entertainment industry that you write, makes billions of dollars telling empire fantasy stories. How do those things coexist in the same place? Yeah, you know, the thing is that, to me, my kids love, you know, cosplay and fantasy movies, you know, the Marvel Universe. And, you know, I've, we, I've been watching those for 20 years. The 20 years of my kid's childhood, I've been watching those movies. And then I read this great quote from Juno Diaz, who says, essentially, all of those movies are really about us, about people of color, mm-hmm. right? Star Wars is really an allegory about imperialism, right? They, there's an evil empire, and, the, you know, the, the resistance is fighting this guerrilla war. And so, to me, it's, it's really kind of a, a sad thing that, you know, these stories of people of color, the, you know, the, the, the guerrillas fighting you know, the, the evil empire become these fantasy stories, and they usually don't have, except for Oscar Isaac, <laughs> they usually don't have a Latino member in the cast, right? And only recently, right, have, have there been more people of color in these casts. So to me, that is part of what makes those stories so powerful, because most of us, many of us, have stories of resisting power. Right? If you're Irish, you have a story right, of resisting the British Empire. If you're, if you're Jewish, you have stories of resisting, right? And so that's what Hollywood is doing with these stories. And it's ironic that this industry is based in Los Angeles because Los Angeles is a Latino city, and there's hardly any Latino people in these movies. Right. One of the things, too, that uh, I was thinking about Uh, having lived in Los Angeles, is that, you know, anyone who comes to the U.S. from somewhere else will have a strong connection to the place they came from. But it seems like it it could be different for Latinos because geographically it's still pretty close. And you have this back-and-forth migration that can happen sometimes seasonally. The connection oftentimes between uh, their life in the U.S. and their life in the place they were from before the U.S., is it's it's closer. Does that impact, in your experience, the way that Latino people experience their time in America because of that oh, back and well, forth? It used to. It used to. I grew up with that. And I think that was true until the early 2000s. And so, yes, people went back and forth. I grew up going back and forth. I'm very lucky. My parents came earlier. They got green cards very quickly. They both became citizens. I was there when they took the citizenship oath. But since 19, the late 1990s, we have this wall. Hmm. And then we've been militarized, and we have there are sensors in the ground, and there's drones overhead. And so there are literally millions of people who are separated from their relatives. You know, I teach at UC Irvine, and every quarter I hear a story of a student describing their parents looking at the, at look, looking at the grandparents' funeral on FaceTime because they can't go back. Hmm. Because if you go back, 
then you're going to have to come back across that wall, you know, cro- you know mm-hmm. past the border patrol. And so what the fence has done is it's become this big scar in millions of Latino families, this sort of barrier between halves of families. People don't see each other for a generation or longer. You mentioned your students, and one of my favorite parts of the book is, is the fact that so many of your students get to tell a little bit of their stories as you're doing all this deep research and all of your great interview work from being a master journalist. How did you get these student stories to be a part of the text? Did you interview them? or? Yeah, well, you know, I teach these really big classes. I teach a Latino studies, intro to Latino studies class, which is about as big as this auditorium. I have like about two or 300 students sometimes. You know, I'm a writer and I really don't know how to teach anything well besides writing. <laughs> so part of the assignment is I tell them, as I could tell you, tell me a story about the Latino experience. So most of my students, you know, half of them are Latino, and so they'll tell me a story about their father, their grandmother, whatever. And then I tell them, if you're not Latino, it's okay. Tell me about a Latino friend, or tell me about the time that you had tacos for the first time. So this (laughs) Chinese guy wrote about, I got off the, you know, plane at LAX, and I went and I saw these flat things, and I found out they were called tortillas, and it's, you know, that that kind of story. And I also tell them, look, this is not like any other assignment. I have to read all of your papers, I am going to spend an entire week reading your papers. So they have to be really good. They have to be funny. So you'll get an A if you make me cry or you make me laugh. (laughs) And, you know, they love it. And so I get all kinds of great stories that way. I'm curious, uh, after, you know, spending the time you did traveling all over the country, talking to all different kinds of folks um, who, uh, you know, have come here often from somewhere else or the descendants, do you feel hopeful... um, after having those conversations and meeting those people, or do you feel a certain amount of despair, uh, despair because of the inequities that still exist in this country and seem pretty intractable? Like, where do you kind of land after this project? Yeah, I think the inequities are really equal opportunity inequities. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of poverty in this country. Mm. There's a lot of white poverty, a lot of Latino poverty, a lot of black poverty. And so, yeah, I think the inequities are there, and you see them across the country, but you also see people getting along. You see Latino people living next to black people in New Orleans, or you see, I am part of my book takes place here in Oregon, right, in Woodburn, Oregon, and you see Latino people getting elected to state legislature and, you know, starting parades and organizations. And I'm just really, really hopeful. And to me, the interesting thing was, you know, I traveling across the country, I really felt, I met so many Latino people that I realized that being Latino really is just another way of being American, mm-hmm. you know? And I just really felt more connected to my own country than ever before. Well, I'm glad that, uh, as somebody who read you at the LA Times a lot, I'm glad that uh, amidst your life in academia, you're still going out and reporting and writing great books like this. The book is Our Migrant Souls. Hector Tobar, thank you so much for coming on Livewire. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Hector Tobar. Right here on Livewire, you can read his book, Our Migrant Souls, which is out now. And by the way, it was named a finalist for the Kirkus Prize, which is a top literary award in the book industry. So congrats to Hector. This is Livewire from PRX. Now, uh, we're going to be talking to Jenna Friedman about her book, Not Funny, in which she Talks about her various attempts at humor. She's a comedy writer and uh, performer as well. But Elena, as we were kind of looking at this week's show, you mentioned that you have a little bit of a story 
of a time when you tried to be funny and it did not go so great? What happened? I don't just have a story. <laughs> I have myriad stories. But I could just give you one today uh, if you would care to be regaled. Please regale me. When I was a little baby cub writer, the writer that I wanted to be more than anybody else was David Sedaris. I wanted people to feel the way I felt when he was telling me these stories and I was just hanging on his every word and laughing my butt off. And so I sat down. uh, I had an old desktop computer that I kept on my kitchen table in my studio apartment. And I wrote the funniest story I could think of about this dude who would drive his weird van with a sunset on it to our elementary school, R.D. Head Elementary, Gwinnett County, Georgia, what, what? And he would uh, take groups of students into the woods and like play the recorder and make them tea. And we all knew that when you were in fifth grade, this is something that you got to have happen. And I was so excited. And then when it happened, we just were like hanging out with this weirdo in the woods while he like played the recorder and made tea out of dirt. It was just like such a letdown. And then we walked back and my mom, my mom knew his partner and my mom was like, oh, they're getting a divorce. He lives in that van. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, this is it. I'm going to write this story. Uh, There was an event coming up that my professor asked me to read for, and I worked so hard on it, and I I didn't read it to anyone, and I just was like, this is a yuck, a minute, I cannot wait. Mm -hmm. I timed it out loud, and it was the right amount of time, and I got up there. It was this big crowd on the Pitt campus, and I read the story, and nobody laughed. Not a single person laughed, and I had to keep going, and I was like, I am the worst writer in the world. I am the worst writer of the world. And then when it was over, people like, thunderously applauded and I was like oh wow my friends are here they're so nice and then my writing professor came up to me and he was like that was one of the most beautifully sad stories I've ever heard (laughs) and then I realized that was what I realized some people think that they're sad but are actually very funny you Mm -hmm. know which I think Sedaris has said about himself like I think he thinks of himself as a very serious person but then it just comes out kind of hilarious and some people think that they're like yucksters but it turns out they have like a dark sad core on the inside because of course I was telling this story about this poor guy who completely disappointed this group of fifth graders and then got into his van and drove away but the good news is You are a great writer. So that was a real good news, bad news situation. People enjoyed it, but not for the reasons you were expecting going in. Yeah, yeah. The other lesson of the story is, of course, you need to read your work aloud to other people before you read it aloud to a large crowd because you don't quite know the effect that it's going to have. So it was a good discovery. And I'm glad it led you to write the amazing books that you have written, which is how you ended up working on this very radio show with me. Speaking of attempts at comedy, uh, these ones may be a little more successful than Elena's. Our uh, next guest is a filmmaker and a creator of the show Indefensible on AMC. Also the show Soft Focus on Adult Swim. She's worked on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and was nominated for an Academy Award for her work on Borat 2, subsequent movie film. Her latest book, Not Funny, Essays on Life, Comedy, Culture, Etc., was called an entertaining and soulful debut by Publishers Weekly. Jenna Friedman joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater to talk about that book. Take a listen. Hi. Hello. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. This is so great. You dedicate this book to your mom, who you say is the funniest person that you know. Is that because of what she said about you at your grandmother's funeral? Yes, and a lot of things. I mean, I get my comedy from her. 
She died. I'm so sorry. It's so sad. Oh, no. I know. Oh, no. I know. I'm not being funny. No, it's horrible. And the book is called Not Funny, which is great because it's like this disclaimer. She passed away after I'd finished the book. It oh, was. Oh, my gosh. I know, you guys. And I'm trying. Here's the thing. I'm trying to write jokes about it in my comedy, and it's so not funny. Like, she died of pancreatic cancer. It was over five weeks. I was so pregnant. It was awful. I know Whoa. we didn't need to talk about this, but um, right afterwards, my husband was like, you should get on stage and, like, you know, try to be, make comedy out of it. And so I did this show. <laughs> he's, he's supportive, but I did this show. And I was like, hey, everybody, like, my mom died, and, like, your mom's going to die, and your mom's going to die, and, like, you'll be lucky if your mom dies before you. And no one laughed. It was less of a <laughs> thanks now, but it was like less of a joke and just like a sad scene in an indie movie nobody's gonna watch. Mm. Yeah. First of all, I'm really, really sorry that your mom passed away. That doesn't make it feel better, but thank but, you. <laughs> your earnestness but, uh, doesn't diffuse the but, tension that I just lobbed into no. this like joyful show by But, but I wanna but I wanna point out that what you just described, you going on stage and saying something that you think is going to be funny and it not working is a real theme in the yeah. book. It seems to be your comedic style. Yeah. I mean, it's not working. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you guys know who I am? You don't. It's fine. But... Um... Like, you tell a story in the book about a friend of yours who, who is a comic... And you would text back and forth mm. with this comic, and you would had this sort of go-to joke about like a, a, a sort of a, an illness that somebody could die from. You're you being so um, measured. Mike DiStefano, yes, brilliant comedian, passed away. Take it away, Jenna Friedman. <laughs> I wrote about it. I did my job. I want to hear you. <laughs> what? Well. All right. This this is an, a, an audience of mostly grown-ups. They can handle it. Mm -hmm. You you would make a lot of jokes about AIDS mm -hmm. and about people dying of AIDS, and you would make these jokes to your friend Mike De, De Stefano. I, I mean, and okay, they weren't they weren't jokes about people dying of AIDS. They were jokes about. Oh, now you want to try to contextualize <laughs> it? Well, they're not making fun of people dying of AIDS. So you know, tragedy plus time equals AIDS jokes, and. Um, when you're a young comic, you just, you talk, you talk, I personally talk about what I'm afraid of. And I grew up, you know, Kids was like a seminal movie for me. Mm -hmm. I just had, it was something I was afraid of. And Mike was really encouraging to me as a young comic. He's like, joke about anything, anything can be funny. And so they weren't jokes about AIDS, they were jokes about my fear of AIDS. Okay. And I would text them to him all the time. You can continue. But I would text those jokes. Because mm -hmm. he was like a mentor to me and really encouraging. And I would text those jokes to him. And then he let you know that his wife had passed away from AIDS. Yeah. Yeah. And I write about it in the book. How do you sort of bounce back from that in the conversation? He was cool. So, no, I just, it's a horrible story. And it's um, not one I would ever say out loud, which is why books are cool. But um... <laughs> Books. When you can't say it out loud. When you can't say it out loud. I was just being honest. I mean, I think with when you're when you're young, like he was a mentor to me early on, and and here he called me and he was like, "Did you know my wife died of AIDS?" And I was like, 
And I didn't, and I talk about how I thought effort, like I couldn't believe that. And then it was real, and he actually has a story uh, on the moth about it, and it's so, I mean, it's incredible if you can listen to it. Um, and uh, Mike DiStefano, again, is his name. He passed away, but um, I'm so, this is so light. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, I'm really glad I called the book not funny, but um, but the book does talk about so many different ways in which a certain kind of comedian gains their momentum and their creativity from pushing those boundaries, not just with like tragedy or death, but also yeah. with like things that are politically, you know, people don't want you to say on television or yeah, and and that whole conversation and experience with Mike really did like inject more humanity, I think, into my comedy and. I, and again, like I think, you know, comedians get into uh, trouble uh, for tweets from a decade ago or whatever. But I think when you're a young comic and you're starting out and you're finding your voice, I'm using like quotation marks. It's like, what does that What does that even mean? Or your point of your point of view. You misstep. You make missteps before you. You need to cross the line to know where it is and, and make mistakes and. Um, and so that was just one kind of uh, moment on my journey of, of like, you know, getting to <laughs> working on Borat. Like, my missteps before that were, like, you know, that, that experience with Mike and Mike being so cool to me and talking about how, you know, he was not offended by it on any level, but it was just, it was, like, an interesting kind of awakening for me. Do you, at this point in your career, have a sort of a different line or way of thinking about what is you know, find a joke about and what isn't or, you know, sort of how to approach these things? Like, do you think about it differently at this point in your career? I mean, I'm a little, I have more experience under my belt. I do still think you can joke about anything as long as you're coming from a place of humanity or not. I mean, I didn't watch the Trump Town Hall, but, like, he seemed to be killing it in that room. So... <laughs> Or you can just joke about anything if CNN uh, picks your audience. You know, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're talking to Jenna Friedman about her book, Not Funny. Uh, one of the things that you also talk about in the book is this idea of likability and mm. how that's really often used against women and people of color. But the thing that you wrote also that I thought was really surprising was you say that as a kid, you didn't really care if people liked you or not, which I feel like is the thing that makes most people do comedy yeah. and host radio shows. <laughs> a desperate need for people liking them, and you didn't have that as a kid? I was cool. I was a cool kid. <laughs> I was. I just didn't care about that stuff. And then when I started to fall in love with comedy, I was like, oh, I need for... I need for people to like me so I can get stage time and get better at this thing I love to do. I need for people to like me so I can get work so I can, you know, open for these other comics and get paid and pay my rent. And likability became this, like, central thing that I had to care about. And it was confusing. And then I think when I turned 30, I just stopped trying to care about it because I realized by that point it was something that I couldn't even control if I wanted to. So there was a window of, like, six years. Yeah. In my 20s, I was like, no, I don't know why I'm talking like I'm in my 20s. But I just was... Like the vocal fry, men love it when a woman's voice is suppressed. You're yeah. like, I, 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 she's so likable. Hire her. You were doing a show for Adult Swim uh, called Soft Focus. Yeah. And uh, I was watching it this week. It's really funny. Thank you. It's very subversive. What were you kind of like? 
what were what were your goals going in? Like, how, what kind of show were you trying to make? So, full disclosure, Mike Lazo, who ran Adult Swim, who I really do love because he took a chance on me, but he had gotten for some comments he made about women in comedy. I don't know. And so because of that, they were like, we need to hire a woman. And that's happened to me and a lot of my friends where that is how we get work, and it's fine. Um, and uh, I was flown down to Atlanta right after Trump became president, and... Um, I don't want to go too into it, but there was this other show on Adult Swim that was this very alt-righty show, and it was popular, and it was really upsetting, and I just wanted to make, like, the antidote to that show, and I wanted to make guy gamers who would, like, watch episodes of Rick and Morty and then, like, accidentally watch my show stoned. Like, I wanted to, like, <laughs> I wanted them to not hate women. So um, that was my unfunny, you know, way, way in, but then Adult Swim gave me all this leeway to do whatever we wanted, and, and it became just such a fun, it was such a fun show it was kind of like a little bit I don't know if any of you know Nathan Fielder he's hilarious oh, yes. Nathan for you Nathan for you it had elements of that but it was like a feminist version of that and it was my dream show and then we're about to shoot the third special and then the pandemic happened so hmm. the book kind of is asking a question of like particularly in comedy when does somebody make it and yeah. the book kind of ends with you, you're uh, nominated for an Academy Award for your work on Borat 2, subsequent movie film, and, uh, and, and you, you, know, you and your husband are going to all this cool stuff related to it, and you're there, you're in the room, it's happening, you're nominated for an Oscar. Now you've got this book out, you're a touring comedian, uh, you have been nominated for an Oscar, do you feel like you've made it? No, but that's because I haven't. Nobody knows who I am, and it's fine, and I like that. I, I, I love anonymity. I just want, like, it's just nice to be able to keep making things and getting paid to make things. That's all I want. Um, I do think, but I, I, so in the book I talk about uh, when I worked for The Daily Show, and someone asked Jon Stewart, you know, it was his last week, and the the vibe was relaxed, and somebody's like, John when did you know that you've made it? And he's like, I still don't, you know? And you're like, what? I, I think that's just what drives comedians to keep making things and keep doing that that kind of um, dissatisfaction with life. <laughs> no, 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 that's not. I love, you know, I, I'm great. Everything's great. But um, <laughs> that's not what my, my point was. I just, you know, I think the idea of making it, it's elusive, it changes. I think it's like, you know, it's the same thing with happiness. It's just the... I am happiest when I'm doing work with cool people and making cool things that say things. And I think that's just kind of what you have to hold on to if you're in a creative profession. But making it is like this arbitrary term that, mm -hmm. you know, the minute that you feel like you have made it, then like you're you're resting on your laurels. And that kind of complacency isn't good for art either. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the book is very funny when it's not talking about death. Yeah. The book is not funny by Jenna Friedman. Jenna, thanks so much for coming oh, on Livewire. Thank Wire. you so much for having me. That was Jenna Friedman right here on Livewire, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Her memoir, Not Funny, Essays on Life, Comedy, Culture, Etc., is available now. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we are going to hear a Tom Waits cover from the folk trio Joseph. Stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. 
Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Before we get to our musical guest, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to comedian, podcaster, LiveWire favorite, fellow panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, uh, Hari Kondabalu, talk about his comedy career and how he ended up hosting the elite cooking competition show on Netflix, Snack vs. Chef. Then we're going to have a singer-songwriter, Margot Silker, stop by and uh, she will explain for the record why it is she might have cow poop on her sleeve at any given time backstage she's also going to play some music off her debut album poho reel so make sure you join us for that hey special thanks this week to megan keys of portland oregon and tammy coulter of seattle washington did you know that megan and tammy are part of the livewire member community and they are generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we're really thankful for that support because it's how we get to keep making Livewire. So a big thanks and shout out to Megan and Tammy. This is Livewire from PRX. Our musical guest this week, or maybe we should say guests, is a group with roots right here in Oregon. They've got a strong sister bond and even stronger harmonies. They are a trio. They've performed on NPR's Tiny Desk concerts. They've played TV shows like The Tonight Show and Conan and music festivals like Coachella. This is the band Joseph, who joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. What uh, what song are we going to hear? Um, we're going to do a song we did not write, but that means a lot to us, that we recently covered and put on an album. It's a Tom Waits song, which we are new to him. And um, we knew who he was. We just hadn't listened to his music yet. Correct. <laughs> just to clarify, not that far under the rock. What Tom Waits <laughs> song are we going to hear? Um, this song is called Come On Up To The House. All right. This is the band Joseph here on Livewire. Come on 
That was the band Joseph. Their newest album, The Sun, is out now. And that is going to wrap it up for this week's episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Hector Tobar, Jenna Friedman, and Joseph. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Molly Pettit is our technical director, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor and mixer. Our marketing and production manager is Karen Pan. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. Jackie Ibarra is our production fellow, and Julian McElmurray is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Megan Keyes of Portland, Oregon, and Tammy Coulter of Seattle, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.com. Or I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.